Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Peter. Episode 138, recorded on October 6th, 2021. Cloud Pod productivity is way up, thanks to Facebook outage. Good evening, Jonathan. How's it going? It's going well. It's pretty quiet here today. Yeah, we're missing uh, Peter and uh, Ryan. Uh, we're not sure where Ryan's at, other than you know he had a dentist appointment and then went off the radar. So hopefully he got good drugs. That's all I can say about that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we can hope. We can hope. And then uh, Peter unfortunately had some some family drop into town, and so he is out as well. So it's just the two of us, which is fine, except for it's a very busy week of uh, CloudPod announcements this week. So we will have to get into that pretty quickly. But a uh, nice job on getting the recording done last week. I I had no doubt in your ability to get a show out while I was gone. Well, you know, it's the it was the uh, it's the shame of not getting it done. I think is, is what drove us to getting yeah, getting yeah. it done. So the public ridicule <laughs> that would have come your that. way. Yeah, <laughs> I honestly had committed to recording something myself. If nobody else had come together and done anything, I was like, damn it, I'm just gonna have to record something myself. Like just uh, you monologuing just for like dry 30 monologue. minutes. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, listeners might like that. You never know. It's uh, it's hard to say. Uh, well, you know, before we get into the show, I do want to ask uh, if you're listening to the show and you enjoy the show that you jump on to Apple Podcasts and uh, rate, rate and review the show. We do love the feedback. Um, or, you know, if you don't use Apple Podcasts because you're an Android person like Jonathan is, uh, you know, you just tell your friends about how much you love the show uh, and how much you get out of it. And we really appreciate that uh, as it's always great to get those reviews and get those feedback because it helps us get rated and ranked in the Apple Podcast library, which is helpful. And, uh, you know, we like to do this show and we like to have you guys listen to it. And the more people who listen, the better off uh, the show will be. So there you go. All right. Well, first up, Cloudflare uh, has decided to get into the object storage market with their new Cloudflare R2 storage, uh, which is an upcoming object storage service that they previewed that will offer lower pricing than existing offerings from the major cloud operators. Typically, storage services charge based not only on how much capacity a company uses, but also the amount of data it transfers to external systems, the dreaded egress cost. Cloudflare R2 will do away with the egress fee. Gasp. It will also be waiving the cost of data requests, the operations which, with which applications fetch information from object storage service for customers that access records infrequently. So this is in single-digit requests per second range. Uh, they will waive the fee, as well as they're offering a lower cost than the leading provider, which is AWS, at uh, basically a penny and a half per gigabyte or $15.35 per terabyte a month, which is 10% less uh, than AWS. Uh, there's a quote here from uh, Cloudflare. R2 will provide 99 point some god-awful number of nines, 11, I think, of annual durability, which describes the likelihood of data loss. If you could store 1 million objects in R2, you can expect to lose one, one once every 100,000 years and the same level of durability as other major providers. R2 will be resistant to regional failures, replicating objects multiple times for high availability. Wow, that's, the egress thing alone is huge. It is. I mean, I think it's a little bit of marketing genius gone into this thing. They 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 sort of pre warned the audience the day before with, oh, you know, S three hasn't had a has, hasn't had a price cut in uh, you know how many years since since it's been around. And I kind of we knew something important was was coming. I think it, yeah, a bit of marketing genius. They sort of gloss over the fact that S three has introduced you know infrequent access tiers and reduced redundancy tiers. Uh, I don't know. It, it's in, in itself, it's great. I think. I think we're missing a bit of data. I mean, I, I think if if you're storing those objects there and expecting, uh, you know, millions of downloads at amazing performance uh, at, at huge cost to to cloud for their for egress, then I think they'll probably have a salesperson knock on your door and say, "Yes, but you need to sign up for the enterprise plan or something like that." I mean, they're not going to give you the service for free, which is kind of how it comes across in the. In oh, the marketing spiel, it's like, oh, I mean, I can store it for free and then download it as many times as I like. Yeah, I don't think it's quite that simple. I mean, what what's the price to put the object there in the first place? What what package do you have to sign up for to be eligible for this level of service? Yeah, I, they haven't I, given you all the details for sure. They, they certainly haven't, and it's 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 exciting though. It's exciting because I think because S three needs some decent competition, and I hope that this is it. And I I really hope that Cloudflare get into into more powerful compute at the edge as well. Yeah, it's interesting because you know we've seen other players come into the market. Like Wasabi uh, has come into the market. We also have Backblaze B two storage. None of them have really seemed to make a huge dent uh, from what I've seen, at least in the cloud spaces I've been in and people I talk to in the industry. 
Uh, it'll be interesting to see if if Cloudflare has an opportunity here to to make a difference. And, and you know, it's interesting because you also look at Cloudflare getting into serverless computing. You also look at the you know what they're already doing for DDoS and for the edge delivery, and now they're giving you this capability for data storage. Like you know, are they sort of trying to make a play on cloud computing in general? Saying, look, if you're not beholden to the legacy instance-based workloads of the past, and you can do something more serverless-like, and you can do more static objects, we're actually the better cloud for you. And it's an interesting play, and it's an interesting way to attack. A, a weak spot in Amazon's uh, armor with the egress fees. And number two, it's also an area that, you know, if it's really the new paradigm of computing, which everyone in serverless thinks it is, then they're in the forefront of the space right now. Yeah, I mean, S3 paired with CloudFront has hundreds of edge locations. I'm sure Cloudflare have thousands and thousands of edge locations because they have servers in, in ISPs, POPs all over the world. And so they can they can certainly afford lower egress fees and, and that moves that moves the power of edge computing so much closer to the average consumer. I think all the focus now has been on 5G and wavelength and and partnering with Verizon and, and things like that for the new 5G edge compute. I think what, what this does for Cloudflare is is they're not forgetting the uh, all us old guys who, who've got home PCs and laptops at home and home offices and moving that compute closer to you know the vast majority of the rest of the users who aren't mobile. Yeah, I mean, I'm excited. Like I don't I don't think I saw Cloudflare coming as as a major competitor, and I, I, I agree with their, and I think, I think, I agree is not the right word. I, I think their, their goal of being one of the top four major players in cloud within a few years is quite realistic. Yeah, I think it could be. Uh, you know, and it's also, you know, it puts more pressure on Amazon to lower prices, which maybe we'll finally get because everyone's been complaining for the last, you know, six months or so about internet costs uh, and AWS. So maybe we'll finally get something at reInvent this year. I can keep my fingers crossed. My wish list <laughs> items. All right. Well, uh, on Monday, uh, you might have heard a million people scream out that they could not get to their Facebook, their Instagram, their WhatsApp pages. Uh, and that is because Facebook disappeared from the internet, uh, just completely down. Uh, so, you know, nicely enough, uh, Facebook uh, decided to host their status page, of course, on Facebook.com infrastructure. So they couldn't update it. So we were left wondering for six hours what was going on in the world of Facebook. Uh, and Cloudflare, at least, uh, gave us some insights before anybody else did. And uh, we've linked to their fantastic write-up of what they saw, as well as a link to the official blog posts uh, from Facebook as well. But basically, you know, there was some type of update from Facebook at around 9 a.m. or so, where they basically <laughs> removed all their BGP routes from the internet, which, when you do that, uh, makes all th- everything break. <laughs> so that's a, that's a pretty horrible uh, outage. Uh, you know, they blame it on a configuration error they say occurred in their system. And the, their follow-up write-up said there was an error in their system that would have prevented this from happening. Uh, it is a, li- a little bit coincidental that the night before, the whistleblower uh, was on 60 Minutes and there was a lot of uh, press about uh, how bad Facebook was being for the world. And then magically, they have a six-hour outage the next day, which sucks up a lot of the news cycle. I'm not, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but you know, it's a little, a little weird. And you almost have to wonder, is, like, is this an inside actor who did something bad? You know, Everything from Facebook says this was just a, this was just a mistake. Uh, which we'll, we'll go with them for face value if you trust Facebook. Uh, but uh, yeah, uh, unfortunate day for them and Hug Ops. Uh, was not, not well received in the cloud space. Uh, actually, a lot of people were upset and were saying, keep it down, uh, which is unusual because normally we're very, in the Twitter space, we're very uh, pro-company uh, operations people. But that, you know, I, I still supported them. It sucks being any outage. <laughs> it does. I, th- I feel like we need the, uh, the Star Wars quote about you know, the millions of voices and the disturbance in the force. Ah, it's very interesting. The, 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 the most recent post I read from, um, from Facebook goes into a little detail about the, the audit tool that failed because of a defect, which would normally have caught a change like this from, from going into production. I, I can, that's, that's fair enough. It's hard to test edge cases and things. But I, I think that the thing that screams out to me is, is making zero sense in this whole thing. And you know, I'm not a conspiracy theorist either, but why would you take out your DNS servers? The, the, supposedly the DNS servers realized they couldn't speak to the data centers and therefore revoke routes, BGP routes to themselves. Why would you possibly take out the authoritative DNS for your, for your company's domains from being accessible by the internet just because your data center was, you know, some other data center was down? I mean, I can see removing records, you know, that's what health checks are for. We, we have smart DNS anymore that, Oh, that data center's down. Let's take these records out of rotation. That makes all total sense. But completely cutting off the DNS 
for all your all your service domains. I, I just I, it blows my mind. I just I can't I can't see any rationale for doing something like that. Which is which is why I'm like, eh, maybe 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 somebody did hit the, the big red panic button to to cut everything off deliberately, and it wasn't quite such the the accident that um, that they claim it was. I don't know. I, yeah. I try not to, I try not to be you know too tinfoil hat thing, but it just it makes no sense that they would cut off their DNS completely just well, because a data center was unavailable. Right. You know, and I just looking at, you know, massive company CICD platforms that, you know, we've heard from Google, we've heard from, you know, Microsoft, we've heard from all kinds of people who are doing massive scale. And, and you, even if you had a command that removed the BGP routes um, in this manner, right, you, you typically don't do it to your entire fleet at the same time. You know, even yeah. even if you, you know, even if you had an audit checker and all that kind of stuff like that, you still typically do canary deployments, and you make sure error rates don't increase. So, you know, I can I can believe that the audit tool had an error and didn't see it, but like you mean to tell me that you just you just allow complete unfettered gateway access to all of your internet connectivity with one command? Like you don't have any type of staging of that? I, that just that kind of blew my mind in the whole thing. I'm like, again. There's a lot of things that make me feel like there may be more to the story that Facebook will not tell us, <laughs> uh, but you know maybe there's not. And, and face value, it, you know, it's a very reasonable thing, but uh, it, it just feels weird to me, especially at an infrastructure of that scale and that size. That you know you're rolling things out at any pace that's not a slow rollout. That slow, and you know, and you've seen it when they've updated the the homepage of Facebook. You know, I think it took me months to get Facebook 2.0. <laughs> you know, like I was like, okay, someday I'll get the new homepage. Not that I'm a big Facebook user, anyways. I mean, even even the Cloud Pod, you know, we're on Facebook, but no one really subscribes to us there. <laughs> so, but we have it there in case someone finds us. But um, you know, I, like I, it's not part of my ecosystem. Uh, my wife is more into Instagram than I am, but uh, you know, she. You know, she she complained this you know that morning like I can't get onto Instagram I'm like yeah Facebook's down for everybody but the the bigger impact is actually WhatsApp because you know for a large portion of the world WhatsApp is the primary method of communication like you go to India you go into uh, different countries overseas Argentina and stuff like that like everyone's on WhatsApp everybody mm-hmm. so you know to not have that communication is a huge loss and you know and you had to wonder you know does Facebook need to think about diversifying their backends in some ways as well and saying hey. You know, should all of their DNS be inside of Facebook, or maybe they should have a third party? They can afford it. Uh, cover you know as a backup. Uh, you know, it wouldn't have solved the BGP problem. They still would have been down, but at least you know DNS wouldn't have failed in quite the same way. But you know, there's lots of questions that I think you know. I look forward to the future uh, roadshow that they do, where they talk about the massive Monday outage <laughs> and what actually happened in more detail. But uh, there's lots of questions here. But uh, you know, ultimately, it's backup, and that's all that matters. Yeah, having. Having to to fly people across the country to break into their data centers <laughs> because they had no remote, lost all remote access. Yeah, maybe <laughs> your maybe your door system to the building and your data. Yeah, you know, maybe the, maybe you should yeah. have them on a separate domain and a separate system that's yeah. isolated from the mothership. All internal tools, no email, no no nothing. It's just uh, yeah, crazy craziness to me. Very, but very I'm sure they've. Uh, it's gonna be a great case study for some BCP uh, exercise in the future. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let's move on to uh, new news in the AWS space. Uh, so first up, uh, at reInvent 2020, uh, they announced the preview of the Prometheus Managed Service, an open-source Prometheus-compatible monitoring service that makes it easy to monitor containerized application scale. And this just tells me that we are very close to reInvent 2021 because everything that got announced last year that didn't GA yet is now rushing to GA in September and October. Because <laughs> no one wants to be the, comp- you know, the product that didn't actually GA before reInvent. They don't want to lap it. Uh, but with this service, you can collect Prometheus metrics from EC2, ECS, EKS, and AWS Distro for OpenTelemetry or even other Prometheus servers as collection agents. And now with the generally available with new features such as Alert Manager and Ruler that support SNS as a receiver destination for notifications from Alert Manager, you can integrate SNS with destinations such as email, webhook, Slack, PagerDuty, OpsGenie, and VictorOps. The service supports two types of rule recording rules and alerting rules. And these rules are the same YAML format as a standalone Prometheus, which may be configured and then evaluated at regular intervals. Uh, so you now have all the great things. And you can learn more about AWS observability tools by visiting their one observability workshop that provides a hands-on experience for you on the wide variety of tool sets AWS offers to set up monitoring and observability. And I went and looked at this. I think I've lost the train on how many things they've released in this space. <laughs> so there's a ton of really good content uh, and some th- good labs that you can definitely check out uh, in that particular space. 
do you think this is this is just a sign that that Kubernetes is going to become much more important in the AWS ecosystem? I mean, I think it has to. I, I mean, it's one the container orchestration space for the most part. It's one most hearts and minds. I think ECS will still nibble at it. Uh, I think Fargate's, you know, on ECS probably still has a lot of leg, uh, you know, to run for customers or big AWS people. But you know, Kubernetes, Outpost, EKS, EKS anywhere, you know, all these things. Like it, it's we're moving more and more to a hybrid world, and this is the only tool that could be hybrid that Amazon offers you in containers. So I think it's going to be here to stay for a while. And then it, you know, if you look at the Google strategy. Oh, Google doesn't have a managed service? Great, just run a container. <laughs> and so if that's your answer to all your problems, just run a container, then you know you can simplify a lot of a lot of sins that way. Yeah. Have to start scratching some notes here for uh, reinvent predictions. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, uh, this one this one takes a little bit to get through. And so uh, I've read it once. Uh, I think Jonathan's read it a couple times to get it, to fully grok it, but uh AWS is announcing the availability of the AWS Cloud Control API, which is a new set of common APIs that are designed to make it easy for developers to manage their AWS and third-party services. As applications and infrastructure become increasingly sophisticated and you work across many AWS services, it becomes increasingly difficult to learn and manage distinct APIs. And the challenge is exasperated uh, when you also use third-party services in your infrastructure, which is my biggest complaint about Spot, actually. <laughs> so... This does solve some of those problems. But the Cloud Control API is a standard set of APIs to perform CRUD operations across hundreds of AWS services and dozens of third-party services. And the five common verbs are in use are including create resource, get resource, update resource, delete resource, and list resource, which you can then call and pass the parameters, including type and attribute of the resource you want to create. An ECS cluster or Lambda function, for example, and the input parameters are defined by a unified resource model using JSON, which everyone loves to write. Similarly, the return and types and error messages are uniform across all verbs and all resources. So today, if you were to want to describe an AWS uh, stream, you would type in, of course, AWS Kinesis, describe stream, dash, dash, stream name, dash, AWS, or whatever your name is of that. Uh, but now you can use AWS Cloud Control, get resource, dash, dash, type, dash, name, AWS, colon, colon, Kinesis, colon, stream, a dash dash identifier, which sounds so much easier. I mean, I just can't believe uh, how much easier that sounds. And then uh, AWS is apparently saying this is great for three different types of people. First of all, is builders who use AWS service APIs to manage their infrastructure or customer infrastructure, leveraging low-level service APIs rather than the higher-level tools. Uh, for example, the need to list and describe all resources deployed in AWS account, which is a very common thing you do in cost management tools, for example. Uh, this becomes difficult when outputs and API commands are all different, requiring constant development and dealing with the changes in outputs. Uh, Cloud Control gives you a single output format and simplifies the coding required, which makes a lot of sense for things like HashiCorp uh, and others as well. Oh, which, by the way, APM partners are the number two group, which includes <laughs> HashiCorp and Pulumi, who also happen to be launch partners of this. Uh, so prior, when AWS released a new service or feature, HashiCorp would need to learn, integrate, and test a new set of AWS service APIs to expose in their offerings, leading to lags between release and availability. And with a new Cloud Control API, partners are able to build unique REST API code bases using unified API verbs, common input parameters, and common error types. They just have to merge the standardized, predefined, uniform resource model to interact with new AWS services exposed as REST resources. And then, of course, they say AWS customers are the third person because you're using tools like Terraform or Pulumi, and you get the benefit from the third party, which is a little bit weird. That's a weird stretch on that third one. Yes, yes it is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is also immutable if you're using the client token parameter, uh, so you can make sure that all of your commands are run properly. Uh, and you don't run into concurrent operation errors or already exist type errors. And any resource type published to the CloudFormation public registry exposes a standard JSON schema and can be acted upon by the Cloud Control API interface. So for all the third-party integrations, they're going to have to go through the CloudFormation public registry in the future to do that. And it's noted uh, that the Cloud Control API is not aimed to replacing the traditional AWS service-level API. They are still there and will always be there. And this is available to you in all regions except for China. That's quite a mouthful. I remember. Yeah, I, I read it. I read it when the when the announcement was made, and I thought, "This some this this kind of looks interesting." I'm not quite sure why yet. What is this exactly? And I read it again a few days ago, and then again before the show. Like, it's it's actually really really good for a number of reasons. They kind of call out the users of them, the, the consumers of it, and and what the intention was. I think that the first thing it does is. It means that that any any additional AWS service now is just is just data in a Terraform provider. You know, you don't you don't need code changes. We don't need to call different APIs. There's there's just one place to go. Literally, if they if they add a new service, you just add that to your list of 
services that you you recurse through and query with this API. And yeah, no code changes. No code changes is great. The other thing it does is kind of gives AWS a chance to have a bit of a do-over in terms of the inconsistencies that have been seen across things like CloudFormation because the verbs that are used, not the verbs, sorry, you know, the, the, the attribute names are a bit inconsistent between different types of resource. Sometimes it's lists, sometimes it's described, sometimes it's a bunch of different things. And it's, it's a little bit all over the place. And, and this gives them a bit of a chance to, to, to sort of re-standardize the way their resources are addressed. I think uh, it's it's awesome. I wish we'd had this a couple of years ago because I have a service that, that needs to deploy infrastructure. I ended up having to call Terraform to do it for me because there was no sensible way to manage creating the resources and keep, keeping track of state myself, that kind of thing. So something like this would have been invaluable because now we can just call this. I, I also think you know, third third most important use case is this is probably going to be a requirement for any new services that launch in AWS at, at launch time to, to have this integration with this service, which means that we would no longer be waiting uh, you know, weeks or months for, for new services to be available in CloudFormation. I think these will be now day one integrations with this service so that you, know, we can, you can start deploying resources using your own tools as soon as they're announced. Yeah, well, I think... I think that I think you're right on that completely because one of the challenges with CloudFormation, I think, was that you know they were a two pizza box team, <laughs> and so you know you built EC2, and then you're like, well, we want to get CloudFormation. You went to the two pizza box team and CloudFormation, and they became a huge bottleneck. And so by now standardizing this input output format, they can actually now make this you know yourself onboard to the service, which makes it yes, you're right. It makes it so the service team that's building the new service has to now be compatible with this API, uh, which is great. So yeah, I agree with you. Uh, I wonder, you know, if they could do something similar to this for uh, IAM, <laughs> because you know IAM is a, is a mess, kind of similar. You know, some of those sins you mentioned, like describe versus list. And we talk about all the time about how you can't figure out uh, permissions that you need for different things, and the permissions change. Like there, there's some things they could do there as well. So I would love to see something like this expand out into potentially IAM in the future too. That's actually interesting you mentioned IAM because now now you only need to give your deployment role, uh, you know, the Terraform. Uh, gets credentials from permission to call this API. Mm-hmm. You know they don't need permission to call any other API. Only this one. Well, uh, you mentioned Terraform, and I talked about Terraform. Uh, so Terraform, of course, being a launch provider, they had a blog post as well. So uh, they're talking a little bit about how what they're going to do with it, and so uh, they're announcing the preview of their new AWS Cloud Control provider. So this is a brand new provider, uh, which leverages the Cloud Control API with a goal to provide capabilities sooner and faster than ever before. Uh, Terraform points out that it, as it provides an abstraction layer for resource providers to proxy through when interacting with AWS Service APIs, they're able to automatically generate the code base for the AWS Cloud Control Terraform provider. Generating the provider allows them to provide new resources faster because they won't have to write boilerplate and standard resource implementations for each new service. Uh, and for now, HashiCorp recommends that you use the new provider to experiment with new services before they're added to Terraform AWS provider as well as test the configurations in dev and staging, or build out proof of concepts uh, to deploy in conjunction with Terraform AWS providers, such as Amazon AppFlow with Amazon S3, uh, which they have a great example for if you're curious about. So Terraform is uh, definitely a benefiter of this, because, <laughs> yeah, not having to buy right, those boilerplates and standards, that's going to be huge. You know, an API limit is another thing as well. You know, now we don't have CloudFormation or, some, or Terraform calling all these APIs. You, know, you, you deploy a massive Terraform stack, which makes you know, which could have hundreds of resources. That's an awful lot of API calls across a whole bunch of services, and I've I've definitely seen problems with API limits. And Terraform is pretty good about retrying, but you know, if you have a, if you have your application that also needs to call those APIs as part of its day to day operation, then you don't want a deployment interfering with the actual operation of your of your app. So now, uh, yeah, by by separating the deployment concerns completely. In terms of security and and um, and limits from the application, it's it's uh, only a good thing. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see uh, how it changes because <laughs> it, it definitely <laughs> could be a big paradigm shift for a lot of things, which is great. Hey everyone, Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the cloud pod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008, they are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io.
www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. Foghorn, the promise of cloud delivered. All right, moving on to Lambda functions. Uh, you know, if you've been out there loving those ARM-based EC2 instances uh, with EC2 hosts and containers, but sadly missing them in Lambda, that's all changing today for you. New and existing functions can now be configured to run on x86 or ARM Graviton 2 processors. Now, this choice, you save money in two ways. First, your function runs more efficiently due to the Graviton 2 architecture, allegedly. Secondly, you pay less for the time that they run. Uh, in fact, Lambda functions powered by Graviton 2 are designed to deliver up to 19% better performance at 20% lower cost. Uh, workloads with multi-threading and multi-processing or performing many I.O. operations can experience lower execution times and even lower cost. That's particularly useful now that Lambda supports functions with 10 gigs of memory and 6 vCPUs. Uh, all Lambda runtimes will build on top of Amazon Linux 2, including the custom runtime, are supported on ARM, with the exception of Node.js 10, uh, which has reached its end of life. So you should be on Node 12 or 14 anyways. Uh, of course, binaries in your function packages would need to be rebuilt for the function code of the architecture you want to use, so don't just go switch the button uh, without knowing what your code base does. And functions packaged as containers will, of course, need to be repackaged as either x86 or ARM. Uh, you can also create two versions of a function, one for x86 and one for ARM, and send traffic to the function via aliases using weights and compare the results in CloudWatch to see if it's helping you or not. And Lambda functions using ARM Graviton 2 architecture provide to 34% price performance improvements with the 20% reduction in duration costs also applies when using provision concurrency, and you can further reduce 17% with a compute savings plan. So lots of savings for you in the Lambda space today. Awesome. I think that the reason we get better performance for um, multi-threaded applications is because they, all, the ARM, all the ARM cores are single-threaded themselves. There's no hyper-threading to, to worry about. So every, every core is its own full core, unlike on x86. Isn't it great? I mean... Yeah, we, definitely something is to consider. You know, you might you may think that your Python script is uh, sort of ambivalent to whether it runs on x86 or not, but you'd be surprised how many packages when you install them actually do you know call call C to build native code on the on the uh, on the backend as you install them. So yeah, definitely have to be be wary of of the architecture. But I think I think um, multi-platform. Docker images are uh, are around as well, so hopefully Amazon will support those as well and sort of intuitively switch the um, the compute based on what's available in the in the container. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see you know how when Graviton three comes out, which you know if I were to make a reinvent prediction, it might be there. <laughs> it's been a while since Graviton two came out. Uh, you know, you had to wonder, you know, how does these how do these runtimes start changing and moving, and does that start changing some of these paradigms in the future too? So far, you know, everything's runtime. So that's helpful. Yeah, but 20%, 20% less cost. I mean, performance improvements, uh, you know, I could kind of take it or leave it a little bit. There, there are a few use cases where I really think I care about an extra 20% performance when, when you have I.O. to consider. Well, no. I mean, if you're doing serverless right, you are 1,000% correct. But if you're doing serverless wrong, <laughs> where you're doing really <laughs> long-running transactions, uh, you do care that it's 20% faster because it's a big cost. Like I, there was actually interesting chatter in... The uh, the FinOps Foundation Slack room a week, a week or two ago, and uh, they were talking. There was some presentation someone gave, and basically saying if you ran a Lambda function for like 16 minutes, it's basically more. It costs you more than it would run on EC2, <laughs> which you're right. If you you know that's not what it was designed for, but they're supporting the use case if you have the need. But it is a lot more expensive, and so uh, if you're doing it Lambda in the bad way, <laughs> you definitely should. Uh, <laughs> Look at you know moving to ARM and doing it in a different way, or or just moving to EC2, which would be much cheaper. Yeah. But uh, you know if you're doing it in the right way, which is very event driven, very you know very rapid transactions, then I agree with you. I think it makes you know the savings of performance is not as important. I I, I like the FinOps Foundation and the, and their their mission. I, I think it's I think there's more to it than just that. I don't think you can just look at, at compute time and runtime. And yes, Lambda is more expensive than EC2, but you know I don't need to pay for an antivirus. Agent or a, you know a DLP agent or the overheads of patching and and having to staff managing fleets of EC2 instances or dealing with maintenance events or I mean there's there's a whole bunch of things about EC2 which which cost money which probably don't get factored into that and so is Lambda still more expensive probably but it's a whole lot more convenient and I think the, the speed at which you can deploy you know develop and deploy applications to Lambda is just far far better than EC2. It must be worth an awful lot. 
All right. Well, an announcement that I am still confused about. VMware Cloud is now available to you on AWS Outposts, bringing you VMware software-defined data center as a fully managed service on-premise. Of course, <laughs> uh, in 20... 20- Wasn't it always? <laughs> in 2017, uh, AWS and VMware announced, of course, VMware Cloud <laughs> on AWS. The VMware Cloud on AWS provides dedicated single-tenant cloud infrastructure delivered on the next generation of bare metal AWS infrastructure. At the time, it was Nitro, because it was new. Uh, based on the latest American EC2, or Amazon EC2 optimized high I.O. instances and featuring low-latency, non-volatile memory express NVMe, which was also new uh, at this time. And now VMware and AWS are bringing VMware Cloud to AWS Outposts deployed on Nitro Systems-based EC2-based bare metal instances. With VMware Cloud on AWS Outposts, you can remove the overhead associated with designing, procuring, and managing IT infrastructure, thereby improving IT efficiency, and you can get operational consistency with a single pane of glass in vCenter that allows you to manage your software-defined data center in the AWS regions, on VMware Cloud, on AWS Outposts, and in your self-managed on-premise VMware environment. And all I can think about this is you don't really understand what going cloud-native is, do you? Digital transformation has been lost on you, and you're just moving your tech debt to the cloud. Or to an outpost in your private cloud, <laughs> which is even worse. <sighs> I, I, I don't know where to, it's yeah, an interesting move of Amazon Web Services. I mean, effectively, they, they're going into data center commodity hardware to compete against Cisco or HP. It, which is funny to me because they say, you know, this helps you uh, eliminate the need to design, procure, and manage IT infrastructure. Well, but I still have to design and procure the outpost. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, like, it's that great. Go away. Yeah. You, don't, you don't need procurement people anymore. Just buy this. <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, I, I suppose there will be some people who want outposts. I mean, it's tied to region anyway. I, I, I don't know. I'm, I, I like outposts. I like the common control plane across my local data center and, and my, my cloud presence. I, I think that's of great value. I, I just don't understand why anybody would would still want to keep their their, their VMware presence around. I mean, I, I don't I don't know. You can you, so you can run you can run EC2 locally on an outpost. Why add that additional layer of abstraction and and deploy a software defined data center on that? You, you employ already, a lot of VMware engineers who it's don't already understand. Software, it's already software who don't defined. Cloud <laughs> APIs and they don't want to change. And this is your way of getting them to change and get cloud without getting change. I guess but it's already it's already a software. Define data center. I mean, that's what Outpost brings you to begin mm-hmm. with. I'm like, Bye. it's control planes on top of control planes on top of control <sighs> planes because because you know what they're doing. They're going of course going to take you're going to put Outpost <laughs> running my EC2 control plane. They're going to put in VMware running my VMware. They're going to put Tanzu on top of that, which is going to be the announcement for sure at, at reInvent uh, that you know Tanzu has come to you know VMware on AWS. And so now I can run another control plane on top of all of this. And it's just control planes all the way down. <laughs> all right, gotta, we've got to f- find the first person to to run. Anthos <laughs> on Tanzu. <laughs> on Tanzu. Oh my God, that's, on, on that's amazing. On Outposts. <laughs> yes. If you're that person, please reach out. We'd like to talk to you. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I should also mention uh, VMware is prominently featured by all three cloud vendors this week because it is VMworld this week. Uh, we, we, we aren't covered here typically, but they all the cloud providers have VMware offerings and so they all announced something new uh, or reminded you at least that they had a VMware service uh, in the case of Oracle. So there you go. <laughs> but they're doing what they can to remain relevant. I mean, they're still the news. They haven't gone away. I think everyone imagined that VMware would, would be, if not long gone, then certainly well along the way at this point. But they're still here. They're still relevant. They're, they're, still, uh, they're still making news and they're still doing deals with these cloud providers. So That's true. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, as I, I think someone named Quinny Pig says uh, on Twitter, uh, tech debt, uh, or sorry, pay, uh, payroll processing uh, tech debt company, <laughs> VMware. <laughs> Which is uh, very true, very very true in many ways, unfortunately. But uh, yeah, you know, it's uh, it'll be interesting to see kind of where it goes uh, from here. I no longer, I no longer feel it's the on ramp to the cloud that it once was. It does feel like hybrid is going to be here for a while to stay, unfortunately. Well, Amazon Open Search Service, uh, which is of course the successor to Amazon Elasticsearch Service, which they put in the headline, which I can't wait to get to lightning around later with, announces support for cross cluster replication. Uh, and OpenSearch so now supports cross-cluster replication, enabling you to automatically copy and synchronize indices from one domain to another at low latency in the same or different AWS accounts or regions. With cross-cluster replication, you can achieve a high availability for your mission-critical applications with sequential data consistency. Uh, so there you go. You can replicate between clusters, which it was an enterprise feature that they couldn't support and offer to you until they forked. So there you go. 
Yeah, and I already have a feature request in to allow me to replicate my own data from my own data center. Yeah, that'd be nice, wouldn't it? <laughs> or yeah, or, or a non AWS um, open search cluster because yeah, I already have a petabyte of data which I would love to synchronize out to to something else and not have to manage this cluster. I think I think it's going to be challenging because you know there's there's keys involved uh, which they're not going to want to expose to people. They don't want to expose direct direct access to the nodes in the cluster. You know, you really you really only have access through a load balancer, which which is not ideal for this type of workload, but no, this this is great. I I love to see them eating away and away Elastic Cloud and what Elasticsearch have provided so far. No bitterness. <laughs> no bitterness. <laughs> All right. Well, let's move on to GCP. Uh, so this story actually comes to us from Single uh, Silicon Angle and CNBC, uh, which are reporting that Google is cutting the amount of revenue it takes when customers buy third-party software on its cloud marketplace to compete better with Microsoft Azure. Under the change, GCP percentage goes down from 20% to 3%, which is the same, apparently, as Azure. Uh, Google has yet to confirm the change, so this is all allegedly. Uh, but when reaching out to Google, CNBC was told, our goal is to provide partners with best platform and most competitive incentives in the industry. We can confirm that a change to our marketplace fee structure is in the works, and we'll have more to share on this soon, most likely at Google Cloud Next, next week. So that's where we'll probably hear about that. But yes, uh, you know, Amazon, I guess, is the last one standing with a 20% uh, cut of all software licensing through their marketplace. Oof. That's that's a that's a big chunk of change. Yeah. I mean, it's I, I don't know how much revenue it constitutes for some of these guys, but uh, it'll be very interesting to see if Amazon also falls suit on that particular change. Yeah, and I think I think that that high price for dealing on the marketplace is is why people like Elastics Elastico haven't been able to come to agreements with Amazon over providing sensible you know, licensing agreements. All right, well, moving on to workflows. Uh, Google Workflows is very similar to um, step functions in AWS. <laughs> so let's start there, because that's a good level set of where we're at with knowledge. With workflows, developers can easily orchestrate various services together on Google Cloud or a third-party API, and workflow connectors handle long-running operations of Google Cloud services till completion. And workforce executions can, sorry, workflow executions can also wait for time to pass the built-in sys.sleep function until some computation finishes or some event occurs. But what if you need slow things like Jonathan to approve it, uh, or validation of like something in your system, or an external system like a fulfillment center or an inventory system that's going to notify you that products are back in stock? Instead of using a combination of sleep instructions and API polling, now you'll be able to use workflow callbacks. And with callbacks, execution of the workflow can wait until it receives a call to a specific endpoint and goes on its way. There you go. I think Google, I Amazon got this very recently too. This isn't yeah, this revolutionary. Is, I mean, in a way, I'm I'm surprised this didn't already exist. I, I don't know how they how they could have workflows that, that didn't have this type of functionality unless they they literally always pass something from you know from one one thing to the next thing and assume that it's 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 always running and there's no there's no waiting around for for an event an external event to happen. So this opens up a whole bunch of other use cases that perhaps you couldn't have you could have implemented previously. But it's pretty neat. I mean, it makes makes sense that you might have to wait for something to happen once in a while. Always good. Well, here's the VMware announcement from Google. <laughs> New features coming to Google Cloud VMware Engine, including auto-scaling and much, much more. So now I'll be able to spin up a new VMware ins, uh, ESX instance within 30 minutes. The VMware Engine can auto-scale, leveraging policy-driven automation to scale the nodes needed to meet the compute demands of the VMware infrastructure, which is actually kind of nice. I, I like this. But again, if you're doing VMware, you probably know you need more capacity and just will do it. But if you want to make it as a service through something like Tanzu, you might need this. Uh, Mumbai region is now available for VMware. Uh, if you were in Mumbai and wanted a VMware cluster, you can now get it. With new Google Cloud KMS integration now in preview, so you can use your KMS keys inside of VMware. It's now HIPAA compliant, and it now supports NSX-T support for Active Directory for all your logon needs, and vSAN trim, and unmapped support for thin provisioning recovery. Uh, so those are all new things in the Google Cloud VMware engine at VMworld. Nope. I got nothing. <laughs> <laughs> well, all I can think is, you know, maybe... Uh... I don't know. It's, it's it's like running an ancient, you know, PC emulator or something just to just to experience what Windows for workgroups was like on uh, on Windows 11. I'm like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, it's it's nice. All these are good features. The KMS integration is a nice touch. Uh, oh yeah, like definitely. But uh, you know, again, if you're is this really your end state for how you want to auto scaling? I mean, you you, you already we already have 
autoscaling is almost almost table stakes for any any kind of public cloud, and and they're just implementing autoscaling for a VMware cluster. I'm like, it just it just yeah no. Well, I mean, in the Amazon space, you typically are buying VMware as like a T-shirt size. So I want a small cluster, a medium cluster, or extra large, or large cluster. Um, so there's really no auto-scaling there either. So, you know, this is something revolutionary to what Google's doing in this space because it doesn't exist, as far as I'm aware, in AWS. Although I've yet to use the VMware on AWS offering because everyone keeps telling me no. So <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Every time I mention it, everyone looks at me like I'm crazy. I'm like, no, no, don't do that. I'm like, but it can move, make this migration so much faster. I mean, the reason not to though, you just all of a sudden you, you lose access to to things like you know the metadata service and and um, native access to Amazon services. And I I would assume the same the same type of limitations apply if you run VMs through VMware on GCP as well. All of a sudden you you lose all that that sort of differentiated, amazing uh, sort of layer that they that they add to, add to uh, to VMs. And all of a sudden you have to start managing credentials externally, and it's just um, I don't know, a, a step backwards. Yep. All right, well, moving on to a step forward. Ooh. <laughs> uh, apparently, Google says that their customers are asking for new features in cloud KMS. And one of those features they're asking for is improved transparency around their crypto inventory. The newly launched key inventory dashboard it now helps their customers more easily explore, search, and review keys using their organization all from one place in the Google Cloud Console. Uh, the key inventory dashboard provides you a comprehensive information about your crypto keys, details such as key name, creation date, last and next rotation dates, rotation frequency, and among, among many other attributes. And these at- insights are comprehensively presented in table form, which is always the way I like to get my reports, which makes it easy to sort and filter keys by various attributes. This is a compliance person's dream yeah. feature. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, you know who the, the target audience or something like this is when it's in the console and it's in the tabular form? Yes. And it's sort of, you can sort it and filter based on those tabs. Yes. <laughs> I know exactly what this is for. Uh, so that's, that's cool. And I, I do appreciate it. But the one next is kind of cool. Uh, new support for PKS uh, number 11 standard to allow their applications to make use of Google Cloud cryptography. This will allow customers to access keys in Cloud KMS or the Cloud H- HSM via the PKCS number 11 V240 API, which is a better name. Additionally, they're announcing that this library is being made available as an open source project and will be welcomed to the community's contributions for possible inclusion in subsequent versions. Uh, so basically, uh, allowing you to use all of their key manuals for anything you want to do as long as it supports this API, which is great. So I mean, now I can get rid of my expensive HSMs. I can get rid of all my legacy BS. I can just use this. I like it. Yeah, and that's good because now, now for for dev environments, you can you can simulate those services without having to pay tens of thousands of dollars for them because uh, they they're not cheap to spin up. Cloud HSM is not is not um not for the faint of heart. <laughs> I, mean, I hope you're not using Cloud HSM for your dev environment. <laughs> no, but, KMS but, I mean, will do. But... In, in terms, yeah, I mean, but in, in terms of in terms of consistent testing uh, and and sort of promotion of, of your application through different environments, you want. You don't want to have different application code. You need either a standard API to whatever you, whatever the backend is for the key stuff. Yeah, that's a fair. Way. I didn't think about it from that perspective. Like the the code that you write to actually get the data out of HSM versus uh, KMS is different. So that makes sense. The next one uh, was something new to me. I didn't know this about the cloud. Variable key destruction and fast key deletion. <laughs> Variable key destruction feature allows you to specify a length of time, zero to one hundred twenty days, that a key will remain in scheduled for destruction state after a customer requests the key to be destroyed. This increased control and automation means customers can specify the destruction window that is right for them. This is really great for SaaS companies who, you know, a customer cancels, but you don't want to delete the key for 60 days just in case they change their mind. <laughs> uh, so now you can, you know, deprovision them and all the things you normally do and then basically put a timer on it, which I appreciate because I can't tell you how many times I've forgotten to delete the key after we've already deleted the data uh, just because it was not part of my process. Uh, and then the next part of the fast key deletion, uh, which is rolling out in October, will assure customers that all remnants of their destroyed key material will be fully purged from all parts of the Google Cloud infrastructure. And this reduces Google Cloud's commitment from 180 days to 45 days. I did not know there was a delay here. <laughs> I would not have guessed that, you know, if I deleted a key in KMS or HSM, that it would not be removed immediately from all services in the Google world and cause me a massive outage uh, within, I used to release a day. But uh, 180 days is a long time, and then 45 days is much better, but still a long time as well. Uh, and a new feature of that is that if you re-import the, the original data that created the key, it'll now allow you to uh, restore access to that data. So yeah, that's nice too. So if you, oops, I deleted it, and now you can re-import it. That's so helpful. 
yeah, it's got to be got to be a big concern if you're encrypting, you know, terabytes or, or more data with a with a key that you can delete with, with a single API call. Um, I, I think that that fast delete of keys though is, I, I would suspect that it's it's about meeting compliance requirements about deleting, uh, deleting customer data, deleting personal data because I, I think. If if you if you store, I mean, imagine take backups going back years with with customer data on. Now now legislation allows consumers to request their data is deleted. It's completely impractical to to go back and restore that data, delete a particular customer's piece of information, and then write it all back out to tape. And I think the same thing probably applies in in, in cloud where we we're using object store and we, we're sort of saving that out to like deep freeze type things for. Many years, you know, in in our finance industry, potentially forty years, we have expiry dates on some S three objects right now. But if a customer requests their data is deleted, we need to actually delete it. I think I think the the fast deletion of of the key material is is, is sort of a a different way to delete customer data. I mean, if if you can prove that it's effectively gone, if once that key material has been destroyed, then you can say yes, within forty five days of request to delete your data, it's no longer accessible for all intents and purposes. Yeah, that makes sense. Yep. Just one of those things I didn't know. <laughs> you know, never asked the question, never thought about it, just didn't know. Makes sense why it is that way. Yeah. I mean, the, the good, good thing about things like AES is, you know, if if you if you look at an encrypted file, it should look like random data. Mm-hmm. And so you delete the key, it's effectively, you know, it's effectively, it's effectively random about random data because we have no way to make it not random data. Yep. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> For listeners of the CloudPod, you know that I have no love for Microsoft Active Directory, which is why I'm excited to tell you about the leading cloud directory platform, JumpCloud. JumpCloud makes it easy to solve today's IT challenges by unifying device and user management through a single pane of glass, enabling you to securely manage your users and devices and perform common tasks like onboarding and offboarding remote workers. With JumpCloud, you no longer need to implement an on-premise Active Directory infrastructure or additional tooling to scope a user's access, and you can ensure that the user is coming from trusted devices and networks. Enabling JumpCloud Zero Trust Solutions improves the security and compliance of your network, ensuring users have access only to the services they need when they need them. To start your organization's move to a modern, secure hybrid work model, try JumpCloud for free today at cloud.jumpcloud.com slash the cloudpod. That's cloud.jumpcloud.com slash the cloudpod. Uh, well, uh, the last one from Google this week is uh, if you need an ex- inexpensive managed messaging for streaming analytics, PubSub Lite uh, was made by Google for you. And Lite can be as much as 10x cheaper than PubSub. But until now, the low price came with a lot of more work for you, which is what I always love to see. Less, less capability for less money. Uh, you had to manage the read-write throughput of each partition of every topic. So if you had 10 partition topics, you needed to have 10 write and 10 read capacity utilization metrics, or you might run out of capacity, which is never good for your PubSub uh, implementation, no matter if it's light or full. Uh, Google apparently didn't like this, and I'm sure they also got a lot of feedback from customers. And so they launched PubSub Lite reservations this week to manage throughput capacity for many topics with a single number. A reservation is a regional pool of throughput capacity, and the capacity can be used interchangeably for reading or write operations by any topic within the same project and region as the reservation. Think of this as provisioning a cluster of machines and letting it handle the traffic instead of a cluster is a single number. Not only is it less work, but you no longer have to specify the maximum throughput needed resulting in lower costs. And depending on the variability of the traffic, this can mean that half or more of the capacity was idle, but still costing you money. As a cost-saving bonus, the reservations do away with explicit minimum capacity per partition. There is still a limit on the number of partitions per reservation, though. With this limit, you pay for at least one megabit per second per topic partition. And this is not quite scaled to zero, a pup sub, but beats the four megabits that was required for any partition prior to reservations. So, there you go. Awesome. I mean... Talk about a feature like okay, we want to make a more inexpensive version of PubSub. Like why not? Why not just give me a different like durability tiers and PubSub? Like it's interesting they created this whole new light thing and then they added all this complexity to it. They now have a capacity plan, <laughs> regardless of if it's a reservation or not. It's it's a bit like you know give them the power of PubSub because every customer is going to eventually get to the point where they need PubSub is my guess if they're successful. Um, and so why make them implement on something they're going to change versus just turning a knob? That's kind of my take on it. Yeah, it's it, it kind of I think it speaks to the implementation of of these services in the cloud. I mean, things like serverless, you you know, you pay per nanosecond or per millisecond, and it's it's very much a, a sort of a consumption based model. Whereas some of these things, you know, they must have infrastructure running in order to support this. Whenever somebody sends a message, I mean, perhaps they could re-implement it in a serverless way in the future and still get performance. I don't know. It obviously isn't that today, and so I think this this is really about. 
um, sort of optimizing the, the, the way they deliver the service to you in a way that can help you reduce costs. Yeah, somebody complained. <laughs> Someone complained. <laughs> All right, let's move on to Azure. Uh, you can now streamline your DDoS management with the new AWS, uh, sorry, Azure file overall manager capabilities. Uh, now supports managing Azure DDoS protection standard for virtual networks, and the support is now in preview for the Azure Firewall Manager. Uh, of course, Azure Firewall Manager is a security management service, imagine that, that provides a central security policy for cloud-based security perimeters. Through Azure Firewall Manager, customers can automatically deploy a firewall to a virtual network or a secured virtual hub. Azure DDoS, of course, protects you from DDoS attacks uh, and is automatically tuned to protect all public IP addresses in virtual networks. Protection is simple to enable on any new or existing virtual network and does not require any application or resource changes. So they did a whole press release for basically simplifying the enablement of DDoS in a firewall manager. Oh, thanks for that. I appreciate it. I, I find it interesting that the way we different providers speak about this type of thing. I think as you're referring to it as as a firewall manager, as though a firewall were were a physical thing in a way, is is interesting. I, it kind of reminds me of you know, a rack with a firewall device in it, whereas AWS doesn't doesn't speak in quite the same way. I mean, their their firewall is their security groups and their what sorts of things that nobody uses anymore. The uh, <laughs> the, the the rules between you know between subnets in the VPC, and so it's there's there's no there's no sort of pretense that it's an appliance that's being deployed. Whereas I think as you're still I think it's a, it's a language thing, and I think they're still speaking to people who expect a firewall device to be there that they can plumb the traffic into, rather than sort of taking it for what it is, which is software that's routing network traffic. All right, uh, well, let's move on to uh, NetApp files. Are generally available. Uh, well, they've been generally available since May of 2019, uh, and they have successfully helped clients migrate and run some of the most important production workloads. But to get access, you had to get on the waitlist, which I love being on a waitlist. Don't you, Jonathan? It's so nice. Uh, but <laughs> generally available and having a waitlist doesn't 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 seem yeah, it like seems they, a little uh, weird, right? Like really uh, jive together. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, Azure apparently agreed because they're now removing the waitlist. Uh, and this makes Azure NetApp Files a first-party service in Azure, bringing together the 30 years of NetApp ONTAP innovation and Azure's networking and service management experience. So basically, it was generally available before, but it was a second-class citizen, because now it's first-party. So that's why, and, you know, to get to second-class, you had to be on the waitlist. Uh, over the four years that they've offered this service, uh, since it was in beta in 2017, they've reduced costs by introducing three performance tiers, designed the service to meet or exceed the scale and performance requirements of large and performance-sensitive apps to large petabyte deployments and achieved 4.4 gigabytes of throughput and consistent low latency as low as sub-milliseconds with full durability, all with the power of NetApp and Azure. Now you can get it without having to wait for someone to approve you on the list. Yeah, so not, not only premium and uh, ultra-premium services, they have premium and ultra-premium customers, apparently. <laughs> apparently so. And then, you know, I look forward to the future announcement of uh, Azure NetApp premium or ultra-premium uh, service, you know, files. That'd be great. That's interesting. NetApp, NetApp another company like VMware, which is still, man- still managing to maintain relevance. And um, right now, maybe it's maybe it's around sort of the comfort of doing migrations, and you know we use NetApp in the data center, so we want the same APIs or the same type of service or features in the cloud. I, I kind of wonder if they'll continue to to evolve a little bit and and provide you know value add over the cloud native file services. I mean, so far they have, right? I mean, like until recently, you know, NFS was still pretty problematic on AWS. Mm-hmm. You getting anything of size and performance was not great. Uh, and, you know, I, th- I think the other thing that NetApp had going for it was that they embraced the cloud. They didn't you know, put their head in the sand and say, "Oh, cloud's a fad. We're not going to buy into that BS. Just keep buying hardware." They admit, they acknowledge that, hey, it's a threat to us, and you know, we can either partner with a threat and make something available that makes it easier for customers to be hybrid or or move workloads between the two systems. And they so they did, and I think it was a good call. But um, you know, I think. Other vendors who've embraced that are doing better than the ones that are kind of you know still stuck in the you know we sell hardware business. Yeah, and I, I really like NetApp for for some of the some of the, the features and services they offer. I mean, I, I think this this tiered storage is fantastic, where you've got banks of of SS, fast SSDs for for actively accessed data, and they slowly move that out to to slower storage and even long term storage in in S three or something, and it's all completely seamless to the application. I mean, back, oh God, how many years ago was that? 20 years ago, <laughs> 18 years four, ago, I had a really bad experience four, with NetApp. Four and <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I, I kind of sworn off NetApp and I was like, I'm never going to use NetApp again. I hate them. They're so awful. You know, like a lot of pain, a lot of outages, lots of issues tied to NetApp. And 
you know, and I learned later on in life that there was reasons why we had problems with that company and the way we implemented it. <laughs> that's a, that's a net net problem from 20, you know, 2004. Uh, but you know, then my last company where I worked with you, uh, you know, we had NetApps, a lot of them, petabyte scale, uh, and I, I came to appreciate what they could do and then their capabilities. And when you do it right and you architect it properly and you're not cheap, like my company back in 2004, <laughs> uh, it can be amazing. And so I, you know, I, I became a convert on the NetApp side, and I really like their cloud stuff. So you know, I, people come to me and they're like, "Hey, I really need a scalable, you know, NFS solution for cloud, and I don't want to use a cloud native service. NetApp is my choice," and I'm okay saying that. So. Yeah. The check can be in the mail uh, tomorrow. It's fine. Yeah. Uh, they're not a sponsor, but maybe in the future they can be a sponsor. I'd love to have them. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, we have Azure's VMware announcement because, again, VMworld. <laughs> uh, and they are letting us know that Azure VMware solutions are helping their customers move to the cloud across industries and sectors. The cost savings for VMware licensing alone was a big benefit since that included with the Azure VMware solution, gaining that while eliminating needs for networking equipment, storage, hardware, and professional services deployments amounts to six figures of savings for the university per Mary Lovo, Director of Cloud Infrastructure Services at the University of Miami. Which, is that just a translation of like, hey, I used to pay OPEX to VMware and I just pay it to Azure or I have lots of Azure credits and so it saves me money? Like, I don't, I don't really know how that works, but hey, more power to you, Mary Lovo. I appreciate it. <laughs> uh, since its launch on Azure, is bringing the VMware solutions out globally and is pleased to announce that they're adding Brazil South and East US 2 online with VMware solutions providing it now in 17 regions. And the partnership has also added capabilities to the solution, including support for HCX Enterprise Edition, simplifying bulk live migrations from on-premises, as well as we talked about VMware SRM being added a couple weeks ago, uh, HCX over SD-WAN, and the vRealy suite, all coming to you uh, in the last few months on top of VMware. And there's more coming, more and more coming. So they're going to be adding to their VMware offering on Azure, uh, run commands from Azure VMware Solutions, allowing you to control vCenter from within Azure, uh, new placement policies to simplify the process for admins to specify constraints or rules when allocating VMs within the, a, you know, the uh, Azure VMware service. Uh, Azure disk pools for Azure to provide persistent storage options so you can gain flexibility for your data needs. And something that we'll talk about in the next topic, as well as support for more partners than ever, including Citrix VDI and Azure VMware and Jetstream DR. I do think that live migrations from on-prem to the cloud is, is awesome. I mean, I, I just... <laughs> No longer, no longer when you're doing these app migrations, do you have to even worry about what that server is that uh, that Bob had running, you know, before he left three years ago, and nobody ever rebooted because they're scared to touch it, kind of thing. Literally, just move your entire presence from VMware to the cloud and just leave it running as is. That's 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 quite impressive, and I, I it's a terrible strategy, but um, but technologically, just being able to move a um, a running machine like that is is fantastic. Oh yeah, I mean. The first time I ever saw VMotion mm. in a demo, I like, you know, your head explodes. Like, oh, it was yeah. it's such amazing technology at the time, and just like, oh my god, this is amazing. And then to basically be able to VMotion between your on-premise world and the cloud is is also very cool. Maybe not as cool as the first time I saw VMotion, but still very cool. Yeah, I mean, as long as the machine's not quite that busy, and as long as your storage is sensibly sensibly uh, replicatable because it's not that busy, and you know, VMotion works great when it works otherwise otherwise uh, i mean obviously machines just sit there for hours not quite catching up not quite catching up and the replication never finishes so it's i mean it, it, I, I would imagine for for most sensible use cases it will be fine uh, things like databases with high throughput there are other ways of of getting that data to the cloud without downtime so you, you probably wouldn't really want to use it for things like that but yeah it's it's neat but still it's vmware so <laughs> We need to go and find the VMware uh, standard reinvent or something and say, what, what exactly is the play here? <laughs> you think they're going to tell us? They're going to be like, to help you, you know, manage your hybrid workloads. <laughs> <laughs> like, come on, but really. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure if you go back to the first reinvent, I, I think we were, I think that was the first reinvent we recorded for the show. Uh, I think we pretty much talked about this as being the on ramp to the cloud. And it's going to kill. It's going to kill VMware, and I was wrong. It has not killed VMware. It's only strengthened them. That's <laughs> so yeah. all I can see. Yeah. Well, that thing I mentioned that we'll talk about in a second is, of course, the Azure NetApp files data stores uh, are now available for VMware solutions as well, coming very soon, uh, which allow you to enable, uh, to create an NFS data store via the Azure VMware solution resource provider API CLI with the Azure NetApp file volumes and mount the data stores on clusters of choice in the private cloud. Along with the integration of Azure disk pools for Azure VMware solutions, this will provide more choice to scale storage needs independently of compute resources. As well as if you have VMware on-prem and VMware 
on the cloud and you have NetApp on-prem and NetApp on the cloud, I can now replicate all of that and I can even more automatically move vMotioning between the two places. Yeah, I mean, nothing says performance like layering abstraction on top of abstraction from storage and expecting it to, to work properly. I mean, yeah. Uh, NetApp filers <laughs> on Azure serving NFS, VMDKs to VMware on Azure. Well, we talked about we talked about earlier about the complexity of you know how we get from Tanzu all the way down through VMware on Outposts. Yeah. You know, the first time that someone ever explained to me how the file system works on a NetApp, I was like, oh, that explains a lot. <laughs> you because know, if you're doing VMware, okay, so you're doing you're doing VMware on top of Fiber Channel. So if that's what you're doing on a NetApp, right? Basically, the Fiber Channel is a file that's on a LUN that's on the Waffle file system. <laughs> <laughs> and on top of VMware, you have VMDK, VMFS, and VMDKs, and it's like it's just like so much translation between the operating system and the actual block <laughs> that happens in a NetApp filer, which is why I would not recommend a fiber channel implementation of a NetApp filer. But NFS is actually not too bad because you know you get the benefits <laughs> of NFS and, and it being a, fi- a native file system that's uh, more native to the NetApp. So yeah, I don't I don't particularly recommend the iSCSI or fiber channel use cases for the NetApps. Uh, it can work and it can do the job. It's just there's a lot of translation happening until you get to block. And so you will have performance issues. I guarantee it. Over a, over a real SAN. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. I, I moved from a SAN in Rackspace to, uh, I think it was iSCSI on NetApp. Worst, worst, uh, worst decision you ever worst made. Worst decision I ever made. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it works if, if your volume's not high and it has some benefits, but it's just better, better choices, better choices. Uh, all right. Well, uh, we don't have Peter and we don't have Ryan. So this can be a very unjudged lightning round. <laughs> so we're just going to try to do the best we can. Uh, and so uh, I, I think you're going to read the ones that I marked and you're, I'm going to read the ones you marked. Is that how this is going to work? Is that what our plan was? Yeah, we can we can do something like that. Or, we can, uh, or I can just read it out and give my joke. I, I could, <laughs> you could do that. <laughs> <laughs> I can do that too. Well, we can, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll kind of wing it and see how it goes. I, I did suffer last week from uh, reading out some of these some of the uh, the topics, and being unable to withhold my my comments partway through reading some of the, uh, the 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 press releases and things out. So right. it's uh, you know I, I tried to uh, I tried to get through the whole headline before making a comment. <laughs> All right, AWS Lambda now supports triggering Lambda functions from Amazon SQSQ in a different account. <laughs> I mean, of all the things that you would want to ask you as a lander to do, this seems like the most obvious one and only came to us three years late. <laughs> AWS announces AWS Snowcone SSD. I mean, I prefer my snow cones not solid. That's what I'm saying. I kind of wonder if when they deliver them, that they're delivered on some, uh, some crappy-looking white van with some nursery rhyme playing. Really, <laughs> <laughs> That'd be awesome. Looks like kind of a Libyan terrorist van from Back to the Future or something. Yes. Announcing the release of Swiss German dialect speech recognition support. Finally, they can understand the Bond villains. <laughs> yes, yes, they can. Uh, AWS Stuff Functions support 200 AWS services to enable easier workflow automation. If only it enabled easier use of step functions. <laughs> or easier debugging, at least. <laughs> <laughs> Introducing Amazon Redshift Query Editor V2, a free web-based query authoring tool for data analysts. Because data analysts can't use a CLI. Perfect. Uh, Google's released updated N2D VMs with latest AMD Epic CPUs enable an average over 30% better price performance. Uh, so epic. So, so epic. They didn't even get a new class of instance. Still N2Ds. So you get the confusion of, is it the third generation N2D or is it the second generation N2D? Thanks for that. Super epic. Improve your Google security posture with new overly permissive firewall rule insights. <laughs> Which, when you read this really quickly, well, like what I was doing when I was doing the show notes, I was like, "Really? How does overly permissive firewall rules improve my security?" And then you realize, "Oh, it's it's an analyzer ML thing insights. You got to catch that insights word because the insight I had was like, this is a terrible plan. I don't know what they're thinking over there, Google. And if they can figure this out, then you know my firewalls will be much more secure." <laughs> And finally, Microsoft to launch Financial Services Cloud on November 1st, 2021. I mean, this is really just here for me to gloat. <laughs> like, this prediction has been rock solid all year long. <laughs> uh, I'm so sad the year's almost over, actually, because I don't have something quite as awesome for 2022. So I got to start working on that. But I hope they get those bugs patched before they, before they do that, though. I'm not sure how many financial services companies want to put all their data into Cosmos DB. And yeah, right I don't now, know. it's uh, 
massively undermined confidence. That's true. That is true. Uh, all right. Well, that was a fun lightning round. Well, I think I'll give you the point for that. In fact, maybe we should, maybe we should give us both of ourselves the point for that. Yeah, I'm okay with that. I, yeah, I that's could... 16 for you, 12 for me. I think Ryan yeah, and Peter are showing up. They, sh- they should... Uh, well, Peter doesn't get pointed anyways, but you know, Ryan not showing up. You know, that's... Uh, yeah. All right. Uh, well, we have things coming up once again. So we are very close to Google Cloud Next, October 12th through the 14th. We are not doing predictions because we decided we suck at Google Cloud predictions. And last year, they announced nothing. So we are going with announcing nothing this year, too. So we're just going to go with that. We're going to say that you have to be, you know, to get a prediction show, you have to be in person. That's what we're going to go with. So our new rule of thumb. <laughs> Uh, if that doesn't excite you, HashiConf uh, is October 19th to 22nd, coming up very quickly. And then the government summit uh, for Google is November 3rd through the 4th. And Microsoft Ignite, November 2nd through the 4th. And AWS reInvent, still last I checked, in person, November 29th through December 3rd in Las Vegas. So that's uh, still still happening. I keep checking in the website regularly. Uh, I do have to be vaccinated, which I am, so that's good, so I can attend reInvent. Uh, which uh, you know, I recommend you get vaccinated if you have not. Uh, and you, hopefully, on Monday when the Facebook was down, you were able to do actual research <laughs> versus your uh, <laughs> you know social bubble if you're anti-vax. But uh, you know, whatever, whatever floats your boat. So that is it for us here this week in the cloud. And do like I mentioned at the beginning of the show, please go out there and rate the show and share it with your friends. We love the support and we love doing the show for you guys, and we love seeing those reviews. So appreciate it in advance. Thank you very much. Have a great week, Jonathan. Yeah, you too. Take care. Goodbye. Thanks. Bye. And that is The Week in the Cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Foghorn Consulting and Jump Cloud. Check out our website, The Home of the Cloud Pod, where you can join our newsletter, Slack team, and send feedback or ask questions at thecloudpod.net or tweet us with the hashtag thecloudpod. Thank you.